Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The chapter began with the anger of Jesus in verses 1 through 36. And it ends with the anguish of Jesus in verses 37 through 39. This is the king's final farewell to the nation. This is the final address for his public ministry. Jesus predicts judgment on the religious leaders and on Jerusalem. The religious leaders had become blind to God and insensitive to the spiritual needs of the people who were in darkness and lost. And so Jesus predicts inescapable judgment. Look at verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Remember, the word therefore indicates transition. The therefore is in light of what you've already read in the chapter. What have we seen from the scribes and the Pharisees? Remember, therefore, because you exclude people from heaven and refuse to go to heaven yourself, therefore, because you cross land and sea to make a convert, but you don't turn them to God, you turn them away from God. They were blinded, limited, And because of their limited view of God and because of their limited view of salvation and because of their refusal to believe Jesus' words in verse 15, therefore judgment, the religious leaders blindly led led the people away from God towards the traditions, man-made traditions, away from the word of God in verses 16 through 22. The religious leaders majored, remember, in the small things and minored in the most important things, justice, mercy, faith. The religious leaders 
kept up outward appearances. All the while they were inwardly corrupt. They acted spiritual to cover up personal sin in verses 27 and 28. Jesus reminded them that their behavior in the past was indicative of what they would do in the future in verses 29 through 36. And because of their stubborn unbelief, because of their willful opposition to Jesus, Jesus will pronounce judgment in the strongest terms possible, calling them snakes, a brood of vipers, and then asking them the all-important question, which in fact is not rhetorical, how in the world will you escape hell in verse 33? The religious leaders insisted that they weren't like the previous generation. That they wouldn't act irresponsibly persecuting God's messengers or killing God's messengers. But nothing was further from the truth. And so the Lord declares, therefore. Think about this and you need to get this. Even in the midst of judgment, therefore. In light of what you've done, therefore. I'll send you prophets. I'll send you wise men. I'll send you scribes. I'll send you messengers. And these, the Pharisees, would continue to abuse. They would continue to kill as it's outlined in the book of Acts. This is a brief but accurate statement of what's about to happen in the years to come. In verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus will give two examples of murder and martyrdom at the beginning of God's revelation, Cain killing Abel, at the end of God's revelation, which in the Jewish Hebrew Bible, it began with the Torah, it continued with the Nebaim and, and the Ketubim. In other words, the Jewish Bible ends not at Malachi, but at Second Chronicles. And so the Lord reminds them of the divine purpose and the long-standing wickedness in the recalcitrant rebellion against the Lord from the dawn of God's dealings with Adam's offspring to the present, and even to the future. Note, all the righteous blood shed on the earth. All the righteous blood is going to provoke a profound judgment. And notice the Lord's use of the word righteous twice. Righteous blood shed on the earth. And the blood of righteous Abel. One Bible commentator, Bishop Mool, interprets this as being attentive to God's revealed will. That is, Abel was indeed a prophet. Abel was the recipient of a revelation concerning what God required. God, from the very beginning, revealed that there were two ways to come to God. On your terms or on his terms. And so it has forever been. 
We come to God on our terms or we come to God on his terms and on God's terms has always been according to God's revelation. You'll come to me on the basis of blood, on the basis of sacrifice. What happens if you don't? Judgment. Schofield offers this comment, quote, it is the way also of history. Judgment falls upon one generation for the sins of the centuries, unquote. Abel is the first martyr. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is the last mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 through 21. So literally, prophetically, from A to Z, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah and Jehoiada, the priest, was his grandfather. This was done right before the Jewish captivity, the destruction of the temple, and the captivity of Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 5 through 21. So when Jesus speaks these words, these murders are very cold cases. The homicide of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, over 500 years old. The murder of Abel, thousands of years into the past. And you would think, isn't there some sort of divine statute of limitations? Isn't there a time when God looks at rebellion disobedience, murder, and decides to give it a pass. How could Jesus possibly still blame them after all these years? And of course, it begs the question that sometimes you ask. You mean God will hold me accountable for the sins that I've committed in the past? Yes. Even if it was a long time ago? Yes. How do I get rid of the darkness inside of my heart and the sin in my life? You can do it one of two ways, on your terms or on God's terms. And God's terms has been that you'll come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. He'll absolve you. He'll exonerate you. Jesus brings an indictment against all unbelieving Israel and the fact that in just a few short days, they will arrest him, they will imprison him, they will brutalize him, they will kill him, proves, proves their complicity in the previous crimes. Blood is mentioned three times in this single verse. Blood Blood, blood. And then we recall, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. This is hard for people who are disconnected from the sacrifice. How in the world could sacrifice please God? And the reason? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus says in verse 36, 
assuredly. And when Jesus uses that term assuredly, he wants to draw special attention to what he's about to say. It's, a, it's an idiomatic expression which says, I'm about to tell you the truth. It doesn't mean that he didn't speak the truth before, but he wants to draw special attention. Please listen. He says, when he says the term, assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He is saying all these things, the sum and the substance of accumulated judgment throughout all the centuries is going to fall upon the heads of the generation that's listening to him at that very moment. What things? All the awful things done to the prophets will be visited upon the nation. All of the things done from the time of Joseph as you march forward to Zechariah, the murders, the shed blood, the persecutions, the imprisonments, the hate, the beatings, the isolations, the disconnect is all going to fall upon them in a cosmic flood of judgment after years after years of rejection, Israel is going to be disciplined. Jewish belief was that the blood of murder victims remained in motion until justice was served. And so when you read in the Bible where it says their blood cries out to us, we know it's an idiomatic expression. Blood doesn't scream. But in the supernatural, invisible realm of God, the murder cries for justice until justice has been satisfied. Do you know what the Bible teaches? As unpleasant as it is, sin doesn't go unpunished. You know what's interesting to me? It's interesting to me how many people believe that sin will go unpunished. There are many, many people who believe God will make an, an exception in my case. He will ignore what I've done. He will pretend like it didn't happen. If I distance myself long enough and far enough from what I have done, then God will certainly not hold me accountable for what I've done. But in Galatians 6-7, Paul writes, Be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. But you have family. You have friends, you have neighbors who simply don't believe that that's true. They believe that God's going to make an exception in their case. We live in a world where people desperately want to believe that their sin will go unpunished. But this is the Bible's revelation that sin will be punished and that there's only one way to avoid punishment. This is what the Bible means when it says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. The people of the city of Jerusalem, in just a few days, they're going to be asked by Pilate, what shall we do with your king? In John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 15. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, 
we have no king but Caesar. Matthew 27, 25, and the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our generation. What do you really want? What is it that you truly desire for yourself and for your family? Do you want mercy or do you want justice? Do you want to get what you deserve or do you want mercy and light of what you deserve? You know, the big question that I repeatedly ask almost on a weekly basis from this pulpit isn't just simply to you, but it's to everyone who will hear my voice. It's everyone who will see my face. Why won't you accept God's pardon and God's peace? Why won't you accept full pardon in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But look what Jesus says. He proclaims his indisputable love even in the midst of, ju- of, of judgment. Look what it says in verse 37. Jesus Christ, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How does Jesus at this very moment declare his love in the midst of judgment? Look at the text. The first thing that he does is he expresses his desire. He longs to gather his people. He longs to protect his people. Look, even in the midst of judgment, look what he's saying. Even in the midst of judgment, my first impulse is to gather you and protect you. Do you know what? This is the intimacy of a heart of a mother and a father and a grandmother and a grandfather. You know what the first heartbeat of parents and grandparents are, I want to protect my children. I want to gather my children. I want to protect them. I want to preserve them. I want to help them. That's the heart of Jesus towards you. Second, Jesus reminds them of what he cannot do. What is that? Rejection. Deny Jesus. Despise Jesus, reject Jesus, deny Jesus, despise Jesus. What happens when you reject Jesus, deny Jesus, despise Jesus? Again, remember, surely if I reject Jesus, despise Jesus, deny Jesus, he'll understand, right? God will understand. He he understands my wickedness. He understands my rebellion and my unbelief. God is not mocked. What a man sows, that also he will reap. Look 
Jesus says, your house is left desolate in verse 38. The Lord will remove, Jesus removes his presence from Israel until the time of the great tribulation in verse 39. You will see me no more. But think about that text. Think about it. The moment that Jesus says, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He implies two things Number one, Jews will exist to the end of time when Jesus returns. Two things will absolutely, positively, unequivocally have to happen. There will be a Jewish remnant till the end of time. And Jesus himself, Jesus himself, Jesus himself will return. Some have called this parting the wail of rejected love. He expresses his desire, gather and protect. He says what he cannot do, and then he says what he must do. The Lord cries out in lamentation for the city that continues its rejection in a haunting mixture of feeling and expressive judgment. Jesus pronounces guilt on the city. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Clearly, cities don't kill people. People kill people. Think about what Jesus is saying. Even though the people of Jerusalem harbored deep animosity, bitter hatred for the truth, Intent on killing the messengers. Sent to tell them the truth. Jesus' first heartfelt impulse. Preserve them. Protect them. Preserve them. Protect them. You know, the history of Jerusalem is a history of repeated destructions and repeated protections and repeated preservations and then more destruction and more protection and more preservation. Jesus uses this tender image of a mother hen gathering her chicks under the safety and protection of her feathered body. It's the exact close to same image that Moses uses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, when he says, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. Talk about a helicopter God. I'm looking out for you. I want to preserve you. I want to protect you. I want to preserve you. I want to protect you. Warren Wiersbe rightly says, this is a picture of love of tender care, a willingness to die and protect others. Jesus didn't simply die for the sins of the world. He's also going to die for the nation of Israel. Jesus is going to die. And this is the deep divide that some people have. Did Jesus die for only those people who would love him and believe him? Or did he die for everyone? According to John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to his own, but his own received him not. 
but their denial, verse 37, is going to lead to their desolation in verse 38. W.H. Griffin Thomas called this, quote, a sad story of what might have been, but now it was too late, quote, read it, your house. He could no longer call it my father's house. Your house is left to you desolate. You may not understand what that word means. In the original language, the word translated desolate in the Greek language means abandoned to its own resources. Let me paint a picture for you. Abandoned to your own resources means you don't want God in your life? Then all you have left is what you have left. You. I don't want God in my life. Then all you have is you. I don't want Jesus in my life. Then all you have is you. I don't want God. I don't want Jesus. I don't want the Bible. I don't want the promises that are in the Bible. I don't want any of that. Then all you have left is what you have left. And that's the resources that you have. The people of Jerusalem had been given ample opportunity, repeated warnings, and now is going to come an unavoidable destruction. By the way, within a generation, that's exactly what's going to happen to Jerusalem. 50,000 Jews are going to be slaughtered in Caesarea in Anger and rebellion, the Jewish people are going to rise up and they're going to try and throw off the yoke of Roman occupation. In my coin collection, I have evidence that the Jews attempted to break their rule. And in the very beginning, they experienced a couple of fairly impressive wins over the Roman people. Jerusalem is going to fall. Both Vespasian and Titus is going to take the 10th and the 12th legions along with two other legions. The combined armies are going to number in excess of 80,000 seasoned Roman soldiers. They're going to lay waste to the northern part of the Galilee. They're going to descend upon Jerusalem. And in the coins that I have, the portraits of Vespasian and Titus, if you look closely at their images, their hair is cut like crew cuts. They look like marine sergeants. They, they look like interior linebackers for, for the, 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 the Green Bay Packers. I mean, we're talking old school, crew cut, no-nonsense people. In Damascus, they're going to slit 10,000 Jewish throats. According to us, some estimates, reasonable estimates, one million Jewish people will be killed. Another million people will be enslaved. The vast majority then will be dispersed across the Mediterranean. The Romans had perfected the art of war. Even though the Jewish people, like I said, had a few victories, they would be crushed. Luke 21, 22 says, For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written must be fulfilled, unquote. The Jewish historian Josephus was eyewitness to the destruction in the northern Galilee. He watched with his own eyes as the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and then destroyed the city. 
These are his words. I'm quoting them. Quote, the building that is the temple in Jerusalem. However, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. But now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. It was the, tenth, or the ninth of Av. The very day on which it had been burned by the king of Babylon. In 586 BC, Babylonian armies surrounded Jerusalem on the very day, on that very month, and that very day, Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed. In 586 BC, 70 AD, Tish, Ba'av, the ninth of Av, Jewish people to this very day call it the day of mourning and the day of desolations. Do you think it's a coincidence? For thousands of years, the Jews have survived. Think about this. The Jewish people survived the captivity in Egypt, 400 years of slavery. The Pharaoh embarked on a deliberate, calculated plan of infanticide, seeking to decrease the surplus population of male Jews. Moses was saved from the Holocaust. The turning point in Moses' life was a voice from a burning bush claiming to be God. The bush, according to the text, was on fire but it refused to burn the presence of God like a fire. Israel, like that bush, consumed but refusing to be consumed. Israel's enemies longed for Israel's complete destruction and annihilation, but Israel throughout her history refused to be absorbed into the surrounding cultures. John Phillips writes, quote, the Jew today is the purest-blooded and proudest-descended people in the world. What he was when Tyre fell or when the temple went up in smoke, that he is today. He writes, his language, his literature, his customs are much the same. The Jews have been persistently hated and haunted by the Gentiles, unquote. If you have the fortune of going to Israel with me to this very day, they've revived the language of Hebrew, which lie dormant literally for over thousands, hundreds of, of centuries. But today, you hear a nation speaking the language, and every Jewish child growing up in Israel can read the Torah in the Hebrew language. Here's a brief glimpse into that hatred and persecution. I made a note. A.D. 630, King Theodosius II enacts a legal code that de declares Jews are inherently inferior. They don't deserve the same legal rights and protections as the other citizens of Rome. The net result, Jews could have their, their property confiscated. They could be beaten. They could be killed. They could be tortured for no other reason than sheer animosity and hatred. A.D. 1096, the first crusades begin. The Roman Catholic church wages a holy war to reclaim Jerusalem from the Muslim Turks who have occupied the city for centuries. Quote, 
fearing the Jews would want to resettle and reclaim the land for themselves. Many crusaders engaged in brutal massacres of European Jews, supposedly in the name of Christ, as they marched towards Palestine. Sometimes the soldiers would herd all the Jews into a town or city together, give them an ultimatum to confess Christ or be publicly baptized or be killed. Some Jews made a verbal profession merely to save their lives while others refused and they were slain where they stood. That quote is from John MacArthur in his commentary. AD 1200, even England did not hold permanent sanctuary for the Jewish people. In the 13th century, a Dominican monk studied Hebrew to better witness to Jewish people and he himself became circumcised and he converted to Judaism. With complete dismay, the Catholic Church ordered the monk and all the Jews expelled from Cambridge. In other parts of Europe, Jews were accused of every serious crime imaginable, witchcraft, counterfeiting, etc. The list goes on and on. After mock trials or no trial at all, they would be imprisoned, tortured, exiled, exterminated. Sometimes whole communities were forced to wear identification badges marking them as Jews. AD 1300, in the 14th century, the Black Plague sweeps through Europe. Who do you suppose gets blamed for the plague? The Jew. In France, they were accused of poisoning public wells. In one town, a synagogue full of worshipers were burnt to the ground with all of the Jews inside in desperation and pain, fearing for their lives. Many of them fled to Russia and Eastern Europe. A.D. 1400, the Jews experience unprecedented freedom in Poland. They establish rabbinic schools, Talmudic schools of higher learning. They're oppressed by the church. They later join the government and the church to fight against the Cossacks who come in from Russia. The Cossacks are victorious, and in their victory, they mount an unprecedented slaughter of the Jewish people. A.D. 1492... Some Jews flee to Spain where they find little support or comfort. The same year Columbus sails for America and destiny, Ferdinand and Isabella kick all of the Jews out of Spain. The country was described by one Jewish poet as, quote, hell for the Jews, unquote. During the Spanish Inquisition, those who converted to Judaism who died, had their graves desecrated. They would dig up their bodies and then drag their corpses through the city to be spat upon. In medieval Germany, the Jews were accused of of taking German children and sacrificing them for the Passover. Some were charged with stabbing the Roman Catholic host, that's the bread used in the mass, in order to make the body of Christ bleed. They accused them of these and literally hundreds of ridiculous crimes in order to persecute them. A.D. 1884, a Jewish officer named Alfred Dreyfus is falsely accused and convicted of treason. His crime? He's Jewish. His conviction results in all of the high-ranking Jews being kicked out of the French army. 1940, Hitler begins to take all of the Jews from Germany, Austria, Poland, and he attempts to kill Every man, every woman, every child who claims Jewish ancestry. By some estimates, he succeeds in killing six and a half million Jewish people. 
How do you account for such demonic hatred, sustained hatred over not just a generation, not over a hundred years, but hundreds and then thousands of years. A.W. Cack writes, quote, next to the survival of the Jew, the most baffling historical phenomenon is the hatred which he has repeatedly encountered in the nations of the earth. This hostility to the Jews, which goes under the name of anti-Semitism, is as old as Jewish existence, unquote. It begs a question. What about you? Are you helping the work of God or are you hindering the work of God? When your history is told, when when you stand before God and your life is recounted before the king of heaven, are you going to be seen as a friend of the Jewish people? Or as an enemy. Denial. Desolation. Discipline. Verse 39. No further chances. Verse 39. For I say to you. You shall see me. No more. He's going to leave the temple. Right now. He's never going to go back. He will die. He will come back to life. But the Lord's love remains even in the midst of judgment. Again, don't miss what he's saying. He says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, It will happen. Jesus will return. You know what else is going to happen? I wish I could tell you that anti-Semitism will go away. It won't. I wish I could say to you that Christian persecution will go away. It won't. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the hardened, bitter, recalcitrant refusal and denial will one day, there will come a day when hearts will open and eyes will open. Schofield points out three untils of Israel's blessing. Israel must say, Blessed is, until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 39. Until Luke 21, 24, Gentile world power has to run its course. Romans eleven twenty five, the elect number of Gentiles have to be brought in. Until, until, until there is a moment when the last Gentile will make the last profession of faith And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? History will come to a close. I was hoping maybe it's one of you. Maybe you're the big holdout. (laughs) 
I'm hoping that your heart will turn. How does the Lord Jesus feel about the people who killed the prophets, persecuted the saints, murdered the Messiah? He loves them. He wants to gather them. His first impulse is to protect them and preserve them. And you might read the history of the Jewish people and think in your heart that God hates them and you couldn't be more wrong. God loves the Jewish people. Satan hates them. Zechariah 2.8 For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. You know what your apple is? It's your pupil. Has anyone ever said to you, how would you like a sharp poke in the eye? By the way, if someone stuck a sharp stick in your child's eye or your grandchild's eye, what would be your response? Preserve, protect, but you shall see me no more. Who is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about the disciples because they're going to have a long conversation in just a few moments. It's unbelieving Israel. So what should be our attitude towards the Jews and Israel? We share Christ's love. We share his affections. We share his first impulse. Protect them. Preserve them. We love Israel. We thank God for Israel and the Jewish people. Israel gave us the witness of the one true God of the Bible. It's Israel who provided us with the Messiah. We ought always to pray for the Jew. And we ought always to pray for Jerusalem. If this passage reveals anything, it reveals these quick four things. Number one, God is patient. If God is patient with Israel whom he loves... Doesn't it make perfect sense that he's going to be patient with you? Jerusalem will not immediately accept the Messiah. After repeated offenses and injury, God sends his son. What you may not know is that God deals with rejection way better than you do. He's patient, kind, generous. Number two, Jesus loves you. The Lord's a gentleman. The Lord will never force his affection upon you. He will knock at the door of your heart. He's not going to force you. He's not going to manipulate you. And he's not going to hurt you into submission. Jesus comes with outstretched hands. He's willing to die for you in order to save you, in order to preserve you in order to protect you. Number three, you get to make a choice. You have the awesome ability and responsibility either to accept his love, embrace his offer, or not. The religious leaders were given repeated opportunities to reject or accept in the spiritual realm, there really is no handle 
on the door of your heart. If there is, it only opens from the inside. God isn't going to take and force entry. Your heart has to be open from the inside. And William Barclay said, Sin is the open-eyed, deliberate refusal to accept the appeal of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the horrible consequences of sin. In less than 40 years, Jerusalem is going to be a smoldering ash heap. The disaster was in part a result of the national rejection of Jesus. But had the nation understood that Jesus was their Messiah, I suspect that history would have unfolded quite differently. But make no mistake about it. The nation that rejects God, the church that rejects God, the person who rejects God has the inevitable consequences of judgment. And so ends the public ministry of Jesus. But he will have some private words that he has to impart before he goes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, because you are so patient and because of your love and because we have a choice, Lord, we pray that we would exercise that choice, that we wouldn't refuse, deny, reject the gracious offer. Lord, I pray for that person who's never experienced your love and your pardon, your grace, your mercy, that you would speak to them. And Lord, I pray that they would do what only they can do. Lord, we know that only your Holy Spirit can issue the invitation. Lord, I have no ability whatsoever to save anyone. And yet, Lord, in grace and in mercy, you've entrusted me with the gospel. That if a person will by faith, believe that Jesus is the Lord, that he died for sin, that he was raised for our justification, that a living, loving Jesus is willing to extend grace, mercy, forgiveness to the human heart. Lord, I pray that that would be your choice, Lord. I pray that, that each individual within the sound of my voice would make the choice to open their heart to accept love rather than reject it, to accept forgiveness rather than guilt, to accept grace, heaven, instead of the awful consequences that come with sin. And so, Lord, again, I pray that they would repeat that just very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are who you say that you are. I believe that you love me and that you'll, you're willing to forgive me and that you'll come into my heart and you'll change me. And if you prayed that prayer and if that's your heart's desire, 
the Bible says that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life and that you've passed from death to life and from judgment to reward. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.